Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, welcoming you once again to our ongoing conversation about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Most of you know that uh, this podcast doesn't do a lot of preaching or promoting, but today we're going to do the latter, a little bit of promoting. I recently read a book called Unraveling Philosophy, an interactive guide by Dr. Adam Groza and J.P. Moreland. Dr. Groza is a part of the faculty here at Gateway Seminary. He's the vice president of enrollment and student services and also an associate professor of philosophy for our school. He's been with us for about 13 years and is a tremendous teammate and partner, professor and speaker. And this new book is actually written as a college textbook. Now, when the book came, partly because I'm interested in the subject and also because I support the faculty publications here at Gateway, I got this book and I read it, every word of it, cover to cover, and I was impressed. I was impressed because I don't know that much about philosophy as a discipline. It's been a long time since I had a philosophy class. But I was impressed by this book because it lays out in very clear way that a college freshman can comprehend the basics of philosophy, how to understand the discipline, the key players, if you will, in creating the discipline, and what it can mean, most importantly for us on this podcast, for ministry today. So today, my guest on the podcast is Adam Groza. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Jeff. It's always uh, good to talk with you about theology and philosophy and ministry, and we're going to bring all that together here and talking about your book today. So my first question, I guess, is what first interested you in philosophy as a discipline? How'd you get started in this? Well, I was a college freshman at Northern Arizona University. I was a new believer, and I went into a philosophy class, and um, I had a professor that basically was out to seemingly obliterate my faith. And just seemed like every comment that he made was I, – I, I took as an attack on my faith. So I, I began to, to question, you know, is it possible to be rational um, and also to be a believer? Are those two things mutually exclusive or do they somehow um, – can you, can you be both? And so th- that really began me on a journey of studying philosophy in which I discovered that the majority of philosophers that I was – I was studying in class were believers themselves, themselves. And so as a Christian, that was encouraging to me. And it gave me hope that it is possible to love your God with all your mind and not check your brain at the door. So it was an encouragement to me that there were, there were answers to some of these questions uh, that I was being challenged with in philosophy class. So that's really for me where it all began. That's interesting that this journey started for you in a secular university with a professor who was really trying to dismantle your faith, but was using philosophers, many of whom were Christians, (laughs) to do the very thing uh, that they tried not to do. Well, anyway, so you got interested in philosophy in that first class, but obviously it's become a a lifelong study for you and a discipline that you've invested uh, countless hours of study and, uh, and focus. How has the study of philosophy really impacted you as a Christian and then particularly as a Christian leader? Well, Christian leadership for me began uh, really um, in Los Angeles at L.A. Pierce County College. I was doing college ministry. There was not a college ministry. So we started one. Um, we, we started the Bible Club. We called it the Bible Club. Creativity is not my strong suit. Exactly. So we, we called it the Bible Club. <laughs> and we, we took students through the Bible. 
And uh, we had students come to faith out of Buddhism, out of Hinduism, out of uh, just secularism. And so immediately I was being asked questions that I was not really prepared to answer. So at the time I was in seminary, but I found myself going back to my philosophy classes and some of those philosophy uh, questions. And I began to connect the dots between theology and philosophy. And once again, I just found that this is God's world and the word is true and it corresponds to, uh, to these big questions that people are asking. So for me, it really gave me confidence as a Christian leader um, that, that I needed to be able to address these questions and not give easy answers, but really prepare myself as, as Peter says, you know, be prepared to give an answer to the questions when you're asked of the hope that is within you. And so, um, as a Christian leader for me, it, it really, my, my love of philosophy and my formation as a Christian leader really, uh, started and grew together. I find that very interesting that you said your study of philosophy gave you greater confidence. I think that a lot of leaders today have a crisis of confidence in talking about the big issues that are uh, informing academia and also informing so much of what's going on in the culture. But philosophy really gives us the parameters to have those conversations and the confidence to enter into them with a sense that we really do know what we're talking about and we really can talk about big ideas in any context from a Christian worldview. So obviously this study of philosophy became very important to you as you went on to pursue a PhD and then started teaching it at the seminary level, et cetera. But what was it that motivated you particularly to write this book? Why did Unraveling Philosophy, an interactive guide, become uh, a project that you devoted really months and months to in order to produce this textbook? I'm sure that you and and your listeners know that there's a lot of new information about um, phenomenon sometimes called delayed adolescence, um, but but young people seem to be maturing at a different pace than in previous generations. I was reading CNN just the other day, and they were saying that today's twelfth uh, grader really learns at a different pace, more like um, you know 100 years ago, maybe what an eighth grader learned at. This isn't true across the board, but these are general patterns that that uh, that that we're we're learning about. And so the 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 textbooks that were developed thirty years ago are just really not aimed at today's students' capacity and comprehension levels. So I wanted to write a book that really aimed at today's students was accessible because I know the worst thing you can do as a teacher is be having your students read something that you know they don't understand. Then you have to spend a tremendous amount of time in the in the classroom explaining what you wish they would have been able to understand just in the reading. And so what we did was put together this book with some interactive material that is actually um, comprehensible by students today, um, uses more updated illustrations. You know, for instance, I remember when I started teaching 15 years ago, I could use a movie illustration and students got it. Today, it's more about TikTok illustrations or YouTube short illustrations. So I got to ask my kids, what would be a good illustration for this? But so the illustrations are updated. The material is distilled. It's really aimed at today's student. I found it to be very straightforward in its writing and without a lot of verbosity that sometimes uh, accompanies academic work. You wrote a book that is very direct, very uh, clear, very straightforward. And as I was reading through it, I, I thought, I really understand this. And frankly, 
that's a, a high compliment for a book on something like philosophy if a person who's not an expert in the field can read the book and understand it and get something from it that's really helpful in day-to-day life. And that's one of the reasons I really like the work that you've done here. Now, at the beginning of this book, you make an, a distinction that I found very insightful and helpful. You say that philosophy is deep, but that doesn't mean it has to be difficult. What do you mean by that, that philosophy is deep, but it really doesn't have to be difficult? Well, philosophy begins really with, with uh, you know, these ancient Greek characters, one of whom is Socrates. And if I could make a modern analogy for Socrates, he, um, he is like Andy Griffith or Doc in the movie Cars. Um, you know, if you think about the movie Cars, Doc is a character that distills wisdom. True wisdom is not about being eloquent. It's about being clear. It's about knowing the limits of knowledge and helping others to think clearly. Um, and so I wanted to really return to that model and help people to understand that, that philosophy, true philosophy begins and I think is, is most impactful when it connects with everyday life. Um, and this is one of the powerful things about uh, about Christianity and philosophy is when these two things are combined, we're applying critical thinking and reasoning skills and sound biblical theology to just the kinds of questions that everybody thinks about, whether it's pertaining to marriage or parenting or the bigger issues like um, sexual identity and politics and these types of things. Well, that's a good answer for why the, uh, philosophy is deep, but you've really by the way you've written about it, made it less difficult. And I applaud you for that. Now, as you were writing this book, an important part of it was making it an interactive guide, uh, something that people could use as a tool. So why is that important? And what about the book makes it interactive? And then how is that helpful to people in ministry leadership today? Yeah, the, the philosophy textbooks that were available to me prior to writing this, um, uh, by the time you got to the end of the chapter, it was hard to remember, wh- what did I read 10 pages ago? And w- what we know just through through studies is that if people can pause in a book and either discuss the content or do something interactive, it cements the ideas in their brain. And we wanted to cement the ideas. We wanted to create those neural pathways so that by the time you got to the end of the chapter, you remembered what you read because you can't put into practice what you don't remember. So this is really um, aimed at um, remembering concepts, making connections, um, and and comprehending in a way that connects with your own thinking and your own creativity. Um, I'm always amazed when I'm listening to a sermon at church, Jeff, I don't know about you, but I just sit there and listen. And then I turn over and I look at my wife and she's got more notes in her journal than I promise you the preacher has. Exactly. And so, you know, when I, when I see that, it just reminds me, we all learn differently, whether it's doodling in the margins or whether it's filling out some kind of an interactive questionnaire, you're going to remember more um, through these interactive tools. I think that's why this book is not just a textbook for college freshmen, but it's also a book that could be used in churches. Uh, it's not the kind of book that would intimidate people. It's really the kind of book that people can pick up and read and interact with and learn from even as they're working through it together. Now, you've talked already on the podcast a couple of times about the intersection of Christ, the Christian faith and philosophy. So what about that, Adam? 
is philosophy and faith uh, two separate things? Are they two things that blend together? Are they two things that contradict each other? When you think about the Christian faith and philosophy, how does that inter- intersect? Yeah, I don't think that they're separate. I think that they go together. Philosophy uh, really is a term, um, of course, that means the love of wisdom. And of course, right away, uh, your listeners will know that that sounds like what we're all about. We're all about the pursuit of wisdom in Christ, who is the embodiment of God's wisdom. Um, And so as Christians, we recognize um, that we don't know everything. And that's really where philosophy starts. It starts by causing people to ask questions that show that there are things we don't know. There's a world we don't see. Um, there, there, are, there are realities beyond our experience. And this is where philosophy begins. And this is really where it continues throughout the history of philosophy. Well, as Christians, we know that God knows everything and we don't. Um, and so there's no shame in the humility to say, um, I don't know that I understand this. And so when you enter into a community of your seeking truth, um, as Christians, that's what we do. We seek truth in Christ. The Bible warns against philosophy in places like Colossians 2.8 that is, that is separate from Christ. But of course, reality in Christ is the message of the Bible. Of course, Paul says in Acts 17.28, in him, we live and move and have our being. So as Christians, we understand that reality comes from God, it centers around God, and our job is to humbly pursue the truth in Christ. Um, So there's no separation between philosophy and faith. These things go together, and philosophy as a Christian makes sense of the world. I like that you said philosophy leads to humility. Quite frankly, sometimes philosophers come across as a little intellectually smug or having reached a higher level of understanding or insight than the rest of us. But you're saying that really a true philosopher finds himself or herself humbled by the reality of admitting that there are questions that are bigger than anyone can answer apart from uh, the discovery of truth as you're referring to it coming, of course, from Scripture. So one of the things I like about you as a philosopher is the humility you demonstrate you know, you are a bright guy, you've written a good bit, you speak extensively, but you've never around me projected the idea or the aura that you have it all together or you know the final answer on all these things. And I think that's a good example of philosophy leading you to ask the big questions and come with humility to the discovery of answers that come from truth of Scripture. So while we have a lot of confidence in the truth of Scripture, not so much confidence in our own capacity to be philosophers who think through, analyze, rationalize, and come to these conclusions about the universe that really are beyond anything we can know ourselves. And I also like what you said, that we recognize God is the source of all wisdom, and God does know everything, and we acknowledge that and find ourselves in humility before him in this context. Having said all that, what are some things that you may talk about in the book that might surprise Christians about the subject or the area of philosophy? Well, I think that a lot of a lot of Christians might be surprised um, at, at the chapter that we write in the book that deals with logic and winning an argument. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of Christians think that we should avoid arguments, but arguments is really just a, a word that refers to the competition of ideas. 
And of course, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities. And so there is this unavoidable battle of ideas that we see played out in society every day. Um, and we want to equip Christians with the tools that God has given us in revelation and in reason to engage people and to not only share the truth, but to persuade people. And, um, you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, we persuade men. And I think that if there's one thing missing from evangelism, it's that evangelism is not just sharing the gospel. It's sharing the gospel to a point of persuasion. So what is that? How do we do it? Um, this is a philosophy textbook, but it's going to help you be a better Christian leader and a better evangelist. I love that because it does speak of the importance of persuasion, but it puts it in a context that I think avoids manipulation or any kind of browbeating or any kind of uh, underhanded or sub, uh, sub, subversive attempts to get a person to, quote, believe in Jesus. You said argumentation is the competition of ideas. Could you talk about that just a little bit more? Because quite frankly, some Christians think of argumentation as critical people yelling at each other. But if argumentation is really the, the contest of ideas, what does that mean and how does that look in uh, practically living out philosophy? Well, th think of the competition of ideas like a baseball game or a football game. There are rules. And on the field, there are guys with striped shirts that have whistles and flags, and they can they can blow the whistle and they can throw the flag when someone breaks the rules. The rules of logic are the rules that we abide by in the competition of ideas. And so learning what are the rules of logic and the fallacies that constitute the violations of those rules enables us to loving, lovingly say to someone, hey, we're having this conversation about whether or not God exists or whether or not um, we, we should trust the Bible or whether or not Jesus rose from the dead or any one of these big topic uh, these big topics that philosophy deals with, um, logic enables us to say, look, let's both abide by the rules of reason, which are so embedded into all aspects of, of human communication that they're, that they're unavoidable um, and undeniable. Now, you've just raised another interesting issue that uh, uh, most people probably haven't thought about unless they've read a philosophy book, and that is there are rules of argumentation. Uh, there are rules of logic and of logical reasoning. You outline some of those in the book. How does understanding those things change our perspective on argumentation as a contest of ideas? Again, I come back to this, Adam. I, I just find that some people think that arguing means yelling louder, shaking your fist higher, somehow browbeating another person into believing what you believe. That's really not what you're talking about. You're talking about ideas competing with each other, but in the framework of rules, if you will, of logic and discussion. Any more that you could say about that or any more that you could amplify on how that looks in, uh, in Christian life and in working these things through? Well, as in all things, Jesus is the model. Mm -hmm. And as Dallas Willard points out, Jesus is not only um, to be worshiped for his grace and his mercy, but for his brilliance. And in his article, Jesus the Logician, Jesus models what it looks like to lovingly engage non-believers. And if you love someone, you want what's best for them. And what's best for someone is what's true. And what's true abides by the laws of logic. And so Jesus is the model. 
and in places um, like Luke 20 in regards to the resurrection or in Matthew uh, 12 in regards to um, the, whether or not Jesus violated the laws of the Sabbath. Jesus uses the laws of logic to lovingly show those whom he's talking with um, that, that, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so he uses the laws of logic to show that it's futile to go against God. As the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so f- the opposite of browbeating, um, talking to someone and helping them see how the Christianity is true and conforms to the rules of logic and embodies these laws of logic. And these, these laws of logic come from God himself is, in fact, a very loving thing to do. And I've discovered that as I've had these kind of conversations with people over the years, that the more confident I am in my position and in my in the clarity of the logic of my position, actually the less agitated I become. I'm simply able to lay out what I believe and lay out what I think and do that in such a way that another person can interface with that. And if they react to it negatively, I don't feel threatened by that because I'm secure in what I've come to believe and what I come to understand through the philosophy of understanding the logical arguments that support the things that we believe. Well, we're talking today with uh, Dr. Adam Groza from Gateway Seminary about his new book, Unraveling Philosophy, an interactive guide. He wrote this book as a textbook for college freshmen. I'm saying it can be used in any context. I've read every word of it. It's really well written. It's very direct, straightforward, plain language. It's a book that makes a difficult subject uh, understandable and clear, and I applaud you for that. Now, you wrote in the opening chapter, philosophy is not boring. Now, why did you choose to start a book like this on that topic? Probably because philosophy has a little bit of a bad reputation, but I'll let you answer the question. Well, philosophy does have a bad reputation, and and part of that is what you mentioned earlier with just some of the arrogance that oftentimes philosophy is wrapped up in and and presented with that that that's not that doesn't reflect the the character of Christ that's not what we're aimed at so we need humility but humility doesn't mean ignorance there is a form of christian humility that is informed it is rational and of course again jesus says love the lord with all your mind and so how do we put these things together well what we wanted to do was show that philosophy is not boring for a number of reasons it helps you understand the, the history of ideas. It helps you as a Christian make sense of your own faith. The analogy that I use is, is the analogy of connecting dots. Um, your, your listeners were probably have something like this kind of experience where you go to college, you take all these classes, and they all have separate content. But you leave oftentimes wondering, what is the thread that connects these subjects? What is the line that makes some sort of picture out of these, these, separate, uh, these separate dots? And philosophy really helps you do that. It is big picture thinking. It doesn't mean that you don't get into granular arguments. But when you walk away from philosophy, you're supposed to have a better understanding of yourself and the world. And these are interesting subjects. I mean, these are the things everybody likes talking about themselves, the world. Who am I? What am I here for? What's the purpose of life? And apart from answers to these questions, life is pretty boring. But with the answers provided through the lens of the Christian faith, life is very exciting, very joyful, and uh, worth living. And I think that's really what we want anyone who reads this book to walk away with, is just a confidence that there is a vibrancy to life in Christ engaging 
um, not only your senses, but your reason as well. Well, one of the reasons that philosophy has a reputation for being boring is because sometimes the people who present about it make it so obscure by the words they use and the terms they come up with and the the references they make that it, the, the average person just feels intimidated and wants to slink away. I'm glad you took the very different approach in this book and made it very straightforward, very readable, very clear. In fact, my wife and I have a a uh, little thing we do when we have a lecture here at the seminary on any subject. Uh, when we leave, I'll ask my wife, how did you like that? And if she says, I liked it because I understood it, I know it was a good lecture. Because my wife is a committed Christian, a reasonably intelligent woman, but she doesn't really know the detailed intricacies of a lot of the things that we talk about in theology and philosophy and other things. But if she understands the lecturer, she walks away saying, I got something from that. I understood it. What that tells me is that the lecturer knew his material so well that he could put it in plain terms that anyone could understand it. And to me, that's the a mark of great greatness in being an instructor and educator is when you can take a complex subject and not dumb it down, but just make it clear. And that's what this you've done in this book, Adam. And that's why I think this is a significant philosophy textbook because it doesn't dumb down anything. In fact, it seems like every paragraph is just packed with meatiness. Whenever I read almost every paragraph thinking, wow, I need to stop and think about that some more. Wow, I need to stop and look on that again because it's written that way. But it's so direct and understandable and accessible that anyone, anyone can really see what you're saying and why this matters. Now, I want to talk a little bit about two more areas that you touch on as far as philosophy informing the discussion of what we do today. One you've already alluded to, and that's evangelism. You know, you're one of the most uh, evangelistic, outreach-oriented people that we have here at Gateway. You regularly share your faith and involve yourself with students in street evangelism and in preaching evangelistic messages and in going on mission trips and things like this. You've done this in the U.S. You've done it overseas. I really admire this part of your life. How has your study of philosophy really practically made you a better evangelist? I mean, obviously, you're not giving a, a philosophy lecture every time you're sharing the faith, your faith with someone, but yet it does give you an undergirding. So how does that work, that philosophy sort of bleeds through in your evangelistic work? Well, I think a lot of people are intimidated by evangelism because they're afraid of being asked a question that they're unprepared to answer. And look, if you're going to engage in evangelism and apologetics, and I think those two things should always go together, you should be comfortable saying, I don't know. That's the humility we talked about earlier. Uh, but, but not knowing everything doesn't mean that we don't know anything. And Christians should get confident with what we do know, which, of course, is what God has revealed. Um, and my study of philosophy has, has been interesting in regards to evangelism because I've had the privilege of teaching on multiple continents and many countries. And I always ask my students, what are the top five objections you get to the Christian faith? And you'd think, well, the, the, surely those have got to be different objections if whether you're in Africa or Asia or Europe or different places. And the, my experience is the opposite. In my experience, I've asked students those questions on multiple continents and multiple countries, and they always give me the same list of objections. So this is incredibly empowering and encouraging to the average person in the pew because they are likely to get the same objections no matter where they go. And I've done evangelism with students in San Francisco and here in Southern California. And whether it's more urban, more rural, you're going to get people that want to know, how can I trust the Bible? What about the problem of evil? 
how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Um, what about the what what about um, the, the the issues pertaining to LGBTQ plus um, uh, sens- sensitivities? Um, and so, if you're if you're able to train your people and be prepared yourself to respond to those objections, you're going to be able to respond to the majority of objections you get, which is going to make you more confident in evangelism, which I think means you'll do it more often. And then another area that philosophy helps us with is politics. The political climate in America today is uh, toxic. How does the study of philosophy better prepare a Christian to enter into the theological dialogue that's going, or excuse me, the political dialogue that's going on in our country and to participate meaningfully in the political processes? Well, I think, you know, political philosophy is different than uh, partisan politics. And a lot of the debate, uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the tension in our country revolves around partisan politics. So this, this is, this is the pol- political stuff that revolves around the parties. But what our book tries to do is get beyond that partisan discussion to the foundational issues. And when you get to the foundational issues, um, you discover that God is embedded in humans um, certain, certain values that are transcendent, like the, like, like the, the appreciation of freedom and the, the idea that humans should have some sort of input into the governance. And so um, when you study political philosophy, it gives you confidence that when you're talking to somebody and you might disagree about red or blue, that there are foundational issues that you can find common ground on and use those, those aspects of, of commonality to make connections to the faith because so much of so many of the, our convictions and politics flow out of our theology, but you can't expect someone to have theological convictions when they don't know the God behind those theological truths, those biblical truths. So if you can connect at a foundational level about um, about the, the value of freedom and the value of democracy and why we value those things, we value those things because we're made in God's image. Well, who's God? God has been revealed in Christ. And those then make connections to the faith. I think that that is very valuable in terms of evangelism and community engagement, and it gets past the 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 sense of being stuck in the in the partisan divides that that really um, have crippled our our public discourse. Well, today on the podcast, we've been talking with Dr. Adam Groza from Gateway Seminary about his new book, Unraveling Philosophy: An Interactive Guide. I've read every word of this book and found it to be incredibly helpful for me to understand so much about philosophy, the parameters for the discussion, the uh, different areas and aspects of the history, the ways that philosophy undergirds things like evangelism and political discourse. I found it to be a very helpful tool. So Adam, thank you for being on the podcast today. I encourage you to get this book, use it in your ministry. It's a tool that will help you as you lead on.